The following program is brought to you by Total Theater Online. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff or management of WGBB. You're listening to the station that serves your community, 1240 WGBB. And now it's time for Dave's Gone By with David Lefkowitz. Happy New Year in the neighborhood. Welcome, everybody, to the 109th edition of Dave's Gone By. This actually begins our fourth year on the air. Just shows you how, as my wife, the sociologist, puts it, you can lie with numbers. Dave's Gone By began as a late-night show back in October 2002, so even though we've only been broadcasting for just over two years, now I can put this show on a resume as Dave's Gone By 2002 through present. That's 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005. Four years. Not bad. Okay, so I did just ten shows in 2002, and in 2005 I've done 120th um, of one show. But it's been a darn good 20th so far, hasn't it? And let me assure you that the remaining 1920ths ain't no slouch either. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of commercials, but those are short and fun and cute, so that's merely two twentieths, and they're tolerable, and about four twentieths is theatrical, the weekly segment Inside Broadway, sponsored by Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine. That's up next, and then prepare for a big treat, a musical guest, one of the major folk blues artists of our time, singer-songwriter and guitarist, Chris Smither. He'll take up 13 twentieths of this week's episode. That's 6.5 tenths, if you're left-handed. 6.5 tenths of great music and fun talk with Chris Smither on this January 6, 2005 edition of Dave's Gone By, sponsored by Hewlett Minuteman Press for all your copying and printing needs, hosted by me, Dave Lefkowitz, radio personality, theater critic, journalist, and humorist, the show is usually rated DGB-13 for some mildly non-familial content, but this one feels like a DGB-PG, so everybody gather round. The ball has dropped, the calendar page has turned, and we're on to the second twentieth of this program right after this. Okay, so your business proposal has been typed, proofread, photoshopped, and given a nice cover. Now, all you need is 20 spiral-bound copies, plus a thousand copies of your latest brochure on special paper. Your Xerox can't do it. Your mailroom can't do it. Hewlett Minuteman Press can do it all. Your one-stop printing shop, Minuteman, 1315 Broadway in Hewlett, open six days a week, 10% off for Dave's Gone By listeners. Family-owned Minuteman. Their service can't be duplicated. Hey, baby, for a good time, don't call me. Read Dave Lefkowitz's book, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. It's got all these funny comedies in it. They make you laugh, they make you think, they make you... Ooh, Marriage, Babies, and the End of the World. 516-295-1511 or davesgoneby.com. If you like Dave on the air, you'll love him between the covers. Inside Broadway, brought to you by Total Theater's Performing Arts Insider, your everything theater guide. Starting 
previews tonight and opening tomorrow night at the Phil Bosikowski Theater Off-Broadway is Communion, a comedy by Irish playwright Aidan Matthews. This comedy premiered at the Abbey Theater in Ireland in 2002, and here is the plot to this comedy, which is set in suburban Dublin. 30-year-old Jordan is back at home living with his parents because he has a terminal brain tumor. He's tended to by his brother, who's been out in and out of uh, mental institutions, and by his religious fanatic mother. He's also visited by friends, neighbors, and members of the clergy who watch him deteriorate. <laughs> Sounds like a real laugh riot. But Origin Theatre Company which is doing the American premiere, says the plot has a lot of gallows humor to go with the gloom. And when I read the synopsis for Communion, I immediately thought of another play, Marvin's Room, one of my favorite plays of the last ten years, and one that did mix laughs with moments of incredible heartbreak. And go figure, Marvin's Room must have been an influence on Communion author Aidan Matthews, because he was in a production of it in 1993. Matthews is actually better known as an actor than a playwright. He had a big part in the film adaptation of Jez Butterworth's play Mojo, and a breakout role in the miniseries Queer as Folk. And New Yorkers got to see him on stage a year ago. He played the snotty, scary roommate in the Roundabout Theater's revival of Harold Pinter's The Caretaker. Matthew's play Communion is directed by M. Burke Walker, founder of Seattle's Empty Space Theater. The show plays at the Phil Bosikowski Theater on West 45th Street. For tickets, call 212-868-4444. If Communion sounds a little too dark for a comedy, another show opening this week is very definitely all comedy all the way. And music. of General Stanley, who is, as we all know, 
the very model of a modern major general. It's probably the best-known role in Pirates of Penzance, and in the production playing at City Center the next couple of weeks, the general is played by Hal Linden, Barney Miller himself, and also known for his starring role on Broadway in The Rothschilds. This 125th anniversary production of the Pirates of Penzance is being done by what is undoubtedly the best Gilbert and Sullivan company in America, the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players. Albert Bergeret founded the troupe in 1974, and he remains their director and conductor. About a decade ago, I saw their production of Iolanthe, not expecting much, and it turned out to be one of the most delightful evenings I spent that year. So, if you think you don't like Gilbert and Sullivan, do me a favor, give my gasp a try. The New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players. In fact, for a real treat, spend the afternoon watching Mike Lee's great movie Topsy Turvy, and then head over to City Center for the Pirates of Penzance, now through January 23rd. And if you have a little time in between, why not thumb through a theater magazine? The best theater magazine for information about Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Cabaret in Manhattan, and dance and opera, too. It's Performing Arts Insider. Pages and pages of comprehensive listings, fun facts, and useful information, all easy to read and in a brand new format that looks better than ever. Performing Arts Insider has been a bible of the theater industry for more than 60 years and a favorite of directors, producers, publicists, and booking agents. But you don't have to be in showbiz to love Performing Arts Insider. You just gotta love the theater, the footlights, the words, the music, and want to learn more about it. So, learn more about Performing Arts Insider by getting the latest issue. On sale for just $10 for Days Gone By listeners, and if you subscribe for the year, you can take 10% off that price too. TotalTheater.com is the place to go for all the information, or email paipress at aol.com. P-A-I-Press at AOL.com and find out how you can become a Performing Arts Insider by getting Performing Arts Insider Theater Magazine. It's Broadway the best way. Continuing inside Broadway, Off-Off-Broadway sees two uniquely campy and subversive performers take the spotlight this week. Cross-dressing diva Sunrise Highway, yes, that's his, her name, Sunrise with a Z, Highway. She, he, is doing a solo show at a new club called Elmo, just off West 19th Street. And the real performance art legend, Penny Arcade, she's playing the club Fez this month, too. Penny has been around long enough to have known Andy Warhol, hung out with Patti Smith, and been close friends with Quentin Crisp. That's a lot of New York bohemian history, and she packs it all into her monologues, along with her thoughts on American culture, gentrification, gender politics, and information overload. In other words, she's Karen Finley without the yams, Eve Ensler without the husband, or Dennis Miller with a vagina. Penny Arcade in Rebellion Cabaret at Fez through January 29th. You might even want to see Penny twice, but that's just my two cents. We've just been Inside Broadway with Total Theater and Performing Arts Insider. I hate my family. The holidays came and went, and I didn't get a satellite radio. Oh, who cares? You've got more than enough cool radio to listen to on WGBB. Well, sure. There's days gone by, Thursday nights at 7, but what else? Shh, calm down. 
Right after Dave, there's the instrumental invasion of smooth jazz, hosted by Mike Shimeri at 8, and then Dave comes back at 9 on Thursdays with Filler Up. Well, that's okay. Of course it's okay. Plus, we've got radio psychic Joyce Keller doing her thing Wednesday nights at 11. Oh, man, she's been up for years. That's right. And you can listen to another WGBB veteran, Bonnie D. Graham, talking about the single life on Long Island's Dating, Friday nights at 6. What about comedy? I like comedy. How about Mikey and Jimmy? Comedy, hard rock music, and live bands in the studio, Saturdays at 5.30. And you can also get a few laughs about serious topics like news and politics on Your World with Joe Salzone, Sunday nights at 7. Let me get this straight. Joyce Keller, the psychotic. Psychic. Wednesday nights at 11. Mikey and Jimmy, the funny. Saturday nights at 5.30. That's right. Fridays at 6. It's Long Island's dating. You think Bonnie can hook me up? No. Sundays at 7 is Joe Salzone. Thursday nights it's you at 7. Mike Shimeri at 8. And you again at 9. Did I get it all? Nice job. I don't need a satellite at all. That's right. That's good. I read somewhere the ultrasonic waves would interfere with the space aliens in my head. Why do they always come to me? Welcome back to Dave's Gone By on AM 1240 WGBB in Freeport, New York, and live streaming on the web at AM 1240 WGBB.com. And it's time for Dave's Got Guests, and I've got a really, really special guest uh, this evening, because, um, you know, I have a lot of musical guests on the show, and I've had some pretty amazing and fairly major people, everyone from uh, Tom Paxton to Neil Sedaka to the, the lovely band October Project, and tonight I'm going to stay in that kind of idiom of folk and blues with one of the, one of the real masters of that genre, and someone who has been in the music business, not, not just on the periphery, but in and around it for about four decades now, and um, has really been at his best for the last 10 to 15 years, where he really made uh, a big comeback into the industry, and we'll hear all about that, plus we'll be hearing a bit of his music as well, so please welcome to the neighborhood, Chris Smither. Hey, Dave. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Pretty well. So, um, oh, and one of the reasons also that we're, we're playing this tonight is that you're doing a gig at Joe's Pub right. on January 7th. Correct. And um, you're, you'll be playing stuff, obviously, from all your career and covers, but also from your recent album, which is called Train Home. Right. And as I was saying, the past few years have been, in some ways, the most fruitful and the best for you, musically. Even though you've been at this since, like, the early 60s, from, from literally when folks like Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and Dave, Von, Dave and Ronk were at it. That's right. Um, you were to, so, so, again, why don't we just take it from the beginnings, and uh, the fact that you were born in uh, 1944, and a very itinerant childhood. Yes, quite. <laughs> I think, well, a lot of people had itinerant uh, uh, childhoods when it, being born during the war. And I mean, I was born in Miami, and that was strictly a matter of convenience because my my father happened to be stationed there at the time, and um, I, I don't think we stayed there more than six or seven months. And then we went to Ecuador, and then uh-huh. I think uh, Texas, and then <laughs> and then actually New Orleans became home. I mean, we we went a lot of places out of New Orleans, but we always returned there, and, and that was that was actually my home until I was. In my early 20s. So I assume that also had an influence on you musically as well as just the whole style and feel of New Orleans. I I think it did, although to tell you the truth, I didn't identify that much. I was always looking elsewhere. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a, 
fairly common symptom of, of uh, not being able to see what's right in front of you and the grass is always greener. But, you know, it was after I left New Orleans that people started pointing out how much I'd absorbed from that whole culture without even really realizing it. But my whole sense of rhythm, the way I keep time is very New Orleans. It's almost like a, a backwards uh, timekeeping <coughs> uh, phenomenon that is really apparent in New Orleans-style drumming, but it's something that comes very naturally to me. Can, can you describe it a little more? First of all, did you say backwoods or backwards? Backwards. Backwards. Yeah, backwards. How, what does that mean? Uh, well, the, for instance, the, often the kick drum will be on the two and the four instead of on the one and the three. Okay. It's, it's almost. It's just. It's. It's often turned around, and, and people will watch the way I tap my feet, and they can't understand why my heel comes down when it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but it's something that's totally unconscious to me. I'm not really aware of, you know, the intricacies of what. It's, I just do it the way I feel it, and it became apparent to me much later that that was where that feel came from. Well, I was going to ask about this later, but since we're already um, into this, you are. Are you very specifically, I don't know if you do this at every concert, but there was a point there when, when you told the story in one of your interviews that you go and warm up for a show and then you do the show and then it won't work out too well. And then you discovered something about your feet. Yeah, I had to hear them. <laughs> if, there was, if there was carpeting on the stage, nothing was right. Nothing would work out. And not only did I have to hear my feet, but the audience had to hear my feet. One of the best things that my current management did for me was point that out and say, let's try miking them, you know, because I want to get that out there. And we did it, and, and it, it was a revelation to me. I mean, nothing, nothing, no single thing has changed my, my performance and just the, the way I feel on stage. But the fact that your feet are microphones. And the fact, yes, exactly right. So it, it almost is like two in instruments going at the same time. Now, a one-man band, because you've got percussion. Well, there's, yeah, there's a percussion aspect to it as well. Yeah. Um, now, Obviously, your, the first instrument that you had was not a shoe. Well, no. <laughs> but it, it was a ukulele. Yeah, right. I thought it was a guitar because I was very young, and, and of course, <laughs> I was small enough. And the guitar seemed—I mean, the ukulele seemed big enough. But it was, uh, yeah, that's what really started me on it. I had an, an uncle that showed me three chords, and I was off and running. And uh, my dad was so impressed that he gave me—he got me a guitar when he realized that I wasn't going to put it down after a couple of weeks, the way I did everything else. And right. so he actually found something that I would stay interested in, and and, uh, and I've played guitar ever since. Now, actually, when was that? Were you? I was eleven. Oh, it was relatively old-ish. You know, it wasn't like it was four, you were four years old. So you were, oh, no. you were eleven, and I was nine when I got the ukulele. I was right. eleven when I got the guitar. And then the, the next stepping stone of the career had to do with hearing Mississippi John Hurt. That's right. And well, actually, though, the, no, first oh, one, okay. the first one was Lightning Hopkins. Oh, okay. Tell yeah. me, tell me. Lightning Hopkins, I was introduced to Lightning Hopkins <clears throat> in uh, my freshman year of college. Um, I, I had already been, you know, I, was, I had been introduced to Joan Baez, and, and I was into a lot of folk stuff, and, of course, the Kingston Trio and uh, a bunch of other stuff. But when I first heard Lightning Hopkins, a roommate of mine played it for me. He was from Texas. Mm -hmm. And I just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I thought there were two or three people playing, and it was only one guy on one guitar. And the reason I loved it so much was that, it, to me, it sounded like rock and roll, 
which was my first love. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and so here's this guy with this obvious rhythmic uh, component that sounds so rock and roll to me, only he was doing it all by himself, and I was just enraptured with that. And that's what turned me on to start looking for more blues guys. Well, actually, yeah. Sorry. That's how I found Mississippi John Hurt. And you went to hear him, and the, you were actually on your way, you were in Paris for a year, and like, um, or, or heading off there right. to um, on a college, was that an exchange program kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, that was a junior year abroad program. But after hearing Hurt and I guess Lightning Hopkins do blues, you figured, what, college just wasn't doing it for you? Well, I kept I kept trying. I, I put in four years of effort, but I never got to degrees. <laughs> Did you get to stay in Paris all four years? I would understand no, that. No, I went to Paris for a year. Mm-hmm. My, my freshman year, I went to Mexico City. Then I went. Oh. Then I transferred back to Tulane, and I was in New Orleans for a year. And then I went to Paris for a year. And then I came back to New Orleans for a year. But by that time, I was I was done with college. You know, I, all I wanted to do was play the guitar, and so that was when I left. Uh, I left home a year later, and came up northeast to the northeast and, and started trying to do what I do now. Why did you, as so many people did at that point, even though rock and roll was your first love, did you go for folk and folk blues as opposed to starting a rock band? Well, I, you know, because I couldn't get along with anybody in a band. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I just was always, I always conceived of it as a solo effort. You know, one of the things that, that I loved about Lightning Hopkins was that he was making this beautiful rhythmic sound without being in a band. Hmm. And, and I, I just thought, well, man, if I can do that. Then I, and see, then I was starting to get into Dylan as well. Now, Dylan is very interesting because, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of parallels there because when you listen to him, in the early days, he was doing blues. He was doing acoustic blues, and um, mm-hmm. and then he he was started to write a lot more of his material. Finally, he started writing all of his own material, and you know, to this day, he sounds the same. But you you wouldn't think of calling him a blues artist, and yet it's it, the elements of it are all there. You can hear who he listened to in the beginning, and and it's, it's very much the same way that that I approached it because then I really got into songwriting, and of course. The kinds of rhythms and the kinds of, of harmonic uh, harmonic rhythms that I was into were the, the blues things, and so it came out sounding the way I sound. And um, I, I guess I have to ask this question of everybody who was around from that era: Do you have have you ever met Bob Dylan? Ever no, I've him? never met Bob Dylan. I've only ever seen him play once. Oh wow! Ever. <laughs> <laughs> But was it in the old days, or was it like at Madison Square Garden in 1980-something? No, it was about 19... Actually, it was about 1991, Uh and I was supposed to open for him in Florida, uh, and I was was very excited about it, and uh, I was supposed to open for him in Tampa, and apparently the night before in Tallahassee, somebody had opened for him and done just this absolutely wretched job and so he sent out this, <laughs> this notice saying that he, he didn't want any more solo opening acts and that was me the next night so they canceled me oh man yeah <laughs> how can they do that well or they, they just pay you your fee but they you're... paid me the fee but I didn't get to play and oh. they, they replaced me with a duo yeah that, that I was of course you know I was in no mood to appreciate what they were doing <laughs> I didn't think they were very good but I, Two guys named Simon and Gar something. No, no, no. no I never heard of them before <laughs> since. You know, but um, I stuck around and listened to the show. Man. That's the one time I've ever seen John uh, Bob Dylan mm-hmm. perform. But there are some other people that um, 
Now, one of the interesting things is that, um, I mean, you've opened for some amazing people, and a couple of amazing people, since you've been in in the industry for so long, have opened for you over the years. Now, now, the folks that you've opened for include Ian and Sylvia and Joni Mitchell. Do you have any Joni Mitchell stories or memories or anything like that? Just that it was, you know, it was a five-day, a four- or a five-day stint at... um, place called the main point just outside of philadelphia and i absolutely loved it it was it was a wonderful wonderful weekend for one thing she filled up every show so i got a lot of exposure (laughs) (laughs) and she was very nice i got along with her fine it was it was long before she was very famous at least in my life then but not nearly as famous as she would become and and she was you know i just thought she was very approachable i enjoyed it very much oh cool and and some of the other folks that you Open four include who? Like, um, did I open four of the birds? Oh my gosh! <laughs> did you ever trade uh, guitar licks with Roger McGuinn? Or yeah, cool. And I opened for the birds. I opened for um, Van Morrison. I opened for uh, a lot of a lot of sort of psychedelic rock and roll bands. Oh, because you know, I, I keep thinking of you in terms of the last fifteen years, and not, you know. Not the fact that you were out there in the late sixties and seventies. Right. Um, but any any stories about Van Morrison? Let's say. I mean, not really. Yeah. You know, I, he he thanked me very nicely. You know, when I came off stage and he said and told me that he hadn't had a chance to hear any of the songs, but he could tell by the way the audience was responding that it had gone very well, and he was very pleased for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, considering the way Van Morrison can be sometimes, I, I, that's that even that was nice enough for him that to, was nice. to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I opened for uh, one of the worst shows I ever had was opening at Symphony Hall in Boston for Roberta Flack. Now, what went wrong? I was—I think I was probably the only white guy in the audience <laughs> in the whole place. <laughs> it was terrible. People were booing me. They said, "Get off the stage!" You should have said, "But I'm Donny Hathaway." <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, what I said was, I said, "Listen, let me tell you all something. I'm supposed to sit up here and play for 30 minutes, and they're playing me." They're paying me what seems to me to be a god-awful amount of money, and I am not going to leave before I've earned it. And everybody clapped. That was the biggest hand I got all night. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Now, again, to reverse the question, though, there are folks who opened for you over the years. Now, now, who are some of those people? Uh, Well, Bonnie Raitt started opening for me, and Jackson Brown. Wow. Uh, Tom Waits. I did want to ask about that. Tom, any... I mean, there must have been some wild Tom Waits stories. But some <laughs> I, just, or, no. I thought he was just a, a, a most, uh, one of the most outrageous people I'd ever met. And I absolutely loved him. And I, he opened for me about three different places. Again, at the main point, the same place that I'd opened for Joni Mitchell. He opened for me at a place called the, the Cellar Door in Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. And there was one other one, and I can't remember where it was. But do you remember any specific um, things he said or did or that you guys did together? I mean, did you hang out? Or? Not really. We just okay. sat around and talked. I mean, it was basically, you know, uh, <laughs> a long time ago, a lot of drinking going on. Right. Which is a big difference between the way things are now. There's a lot more drugs and drinking than there are now. But, um, no, I just, and I remember just, thinking to myself, you know, this guy's got it. You know, this something's going to happen with this guy. You know, it's just, it was just too good to be believed. You know? So whatever did become of him? <laughs> <laughs> Tom Waits? <Yeah. laughs> uh, I think he's had a couple of mega-selling records. Yeah. Or even if he didn't, he, he's, he's 
probably one of the most important uh, artists we have. Um, Let me ask uh, another person of that era who was really instrumental for you, and and now we're turning the clock uh, back a bit, someone who's mentioned on Bob Dylan's second album, I believe, Rick Long Schmidt. Right. Whom I used to confuse with Davon Ronk, who is... Yes, a lot of people did. Different people. Well, the Bond thing throws people. But what happened? How did you meet him, and how did you hook up, and how did... He was uh, one of the first people in music that I ever met, and I, I did it very... Into, I, a friend of mine in college uh, was from Sarasota, Florida, and he told me, you know, this guy, Eric Von Schmidt, lives in Sarasota, not very far from my house. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, yeah, you ever heard of him? And I said, well, yeah, because <laughs> I had this... I had a couple of records by him, and I had a, um, there was an Electra album of, you know, a whole collection of urban folk revivalists, urban blues revivalists, you know, that he had done the cover for as well as being on the record itself, and I, and, uh, so I went to Sarasota with this friend of mine, and I just called him up, and he said, and he invited me over to his house, he said, oh, come on over, there's a whole bunch of people over here, so I went over, and there was a, a raft of people, including about half the members of Jim Kruskin's Jug Band. Wow. And so I was in heaven. I was starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I just sat there with my mouth open. But, you know, I, I made some friends. I made some friends. I, made a, I became good friends with Eric, you know. so And he was the one that suggested that I go up to the Northeast. You know, I, he said it very casually, but, I, you know, I took it as you know, a command from God. So I went. But that, that is a little surprising, man. You figure that New Orleans and, and that area would have been a hotbed for music, or, or, or Nashville, let's say, since we were doing country and folk. But then they were saying, no, go up to New York, go up to Philly, go up to yeah, uh, well, Massachusetts. Yeah, that's, that's where all the songwriters were happening. It was in New yeah. York and Boston. And that was before the huge exodus to the West Coast had even started. Do you remember the first song that you wrote? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, the very first song that I ever wrote was called Braden River. Wade in the river? No, Braden River, B-R-A-D-E-N. Is that a river in... It's a river in Florida, not far from where I was hanging out with Von Schmidt. <clears throat> and then uh, I remember the second one, and I remember the third one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what were they? The second one was called Devil Got, My, Got Your Man. Uh-huh. The third one was called Homunculus. I read somewhere in, in one of the interviews or, or a piece about you that it, it expressed a certain kind of philosophy... That you have? Well, it's a very philosophical song. It's, it's, it was the first of, a, of, a, of what was to become quite a, a collection of songs that are kind of meditative and, and, and philosophically based. But it, it's also the name of my publishing company. Oh, okay. Lucky <laughs> <laughs> it was music. There's a man that lives inside my mind He's got eyes that see to the end of time This man never needs nothing at all He's a lonely man He walks along with his head hung down And he's singing a song He don't need a whole lot of loving This man never needs nothing this man never needs nothing at all There is 
no time from then to never. When I ask, he tells me so. He's told me twice that love is blind. I've told him once, but I don't mind. And he don't need a whole lot of loving. This man never needs nothing. This man never needs nothing at all. Records are actually released on a single CD, yeah. which is kind of neat. I, I don't have it with me at the station, but um, right. and then you had like three albums in right. the 1970s, in the early 1970s. And the, the weird thing about your career is that from about 1974 until 85, almost yeah. nothing, or at least nothing on disc. Nothing on disc. No, I, I. It was a whole collection, a whole combination of things, you know, including being dropped by the record company and everything, the whole record business and music business was in flux and nobody was really listening to, to folkies anymore. It seemed that way to me. Plus, I was drinking myself to death and that had more to do with it than anything else. And you know, and I didn't get out of that until about 85. So. Why did you start drinking? Oh, I, I just I started drinking from the time I was 14. <laughs> just because it was all around? or Oh, yeah. That's just what people did. Well, people all my heroes doing... did, too. Yeah, but they were also doing drugs. You didn't get into that. No, <laughs> I don't know. The reason I did do drugs, the drug was alcohol. I did a lot of <laughs> other drugs too, but the one that got me in trouble was alcohol. But I mean, I don't know why does anybody start doing drugs? Drug, I mean, alcohol is just another drug. But it's um, well, were you unhappy? I mean, it seemed like you, you oh, had no reason to be. Oh, okay, <laughs> I was wretched. Why were you unhappy? Because I was drinking. <laughs> okay. So what was it? why did it take 10 years and what happened in in the 1980s that woke you up as it were? Oh, I just got tired of being, you know, such a mess. You know, life was miserable and I, you know, so it was a question of whether am I going to die like this or am I going to get better? And I finally I got better. I you know, it's 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 a hard thing to explain. We could spend 3 or 4 hours talking about how you get out of, you know, right. addictive drugs, but it's uh at some point, something turns the switch, you know, and you say, i got to get out of this somehow, and you do. Had you been performing during those 10 years? Had you oh, been, yeah. Oh, you, so you were still 
and you just didn't record any record anything, but you were out there doing oh, yeah. concerts and touring. Okay. Yeah, I was. Uh, I wasn't writing very much, but I was out there performing. Well, I'm just trying to think. Do you remember? Was there a pinpoint night or or moment when you said tomorrow I'm going to wake up and start fresh, as it were? No, it's a lot more complicated than that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yes. But then, but then it really started. I mean, it was obviously the wisest decision you ever made, because oh, within yeah. a year you you gone. That was it on Flying Fish Records, or, or you got a label. Which one was it? Which record? It was Flying Fish. Yeah. yeah. That, well, actually, I did one little record with uh, Gene Rosenthal out of Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh-huh. And then um, the next record I did was a uh, a live record for Flying Fish, and at the same time I. I I hooked up with uh, some management that was, you know, really quite helpful, very good, and mm-hmm. and really understood um, the sort of things that needed to be done. And at that point in my career, I was perfectly willing to do anything that anybody told me to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a relationship that continues, you know, to this day. It's, it's been been very good. It's a, it's all. It hasn't been a skyrocketing career, but it's been a steady climb up. You know, for the last fifteen, sixteen years. It really has. I mean, you know, everybody has to say if they're in any kind of career. Oh, you know, uh, things are going well, and you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the new record, and I'm proud of. And but you can really, really say that. I mean, just from listening to the canon of of albums over the past week, from everywhere, from up on the lowdown. Uh, Small Revelations, Drive You Home Again, yeah. is one of my favorites. And, and then the recent one, of course, Train Home. Right. Um, the process of writing songs, is it different when you're, you're clean and sober than when you're unclean and, and you know? Well, for one thing, in my present state, I actually write. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so, um, writing continues to be the hardest thing I've ever tried to do. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, a, it's a struggle... And and I guess the the biggest difference between now and the early days of writing songs is that now I I sort of have an inner conviction that it will get done. You know, and I I used to feel like I'll never get another one. I'd finish one song and I'd say that's it. I don't think there's anything more. <laughs> <laughs> and now I I know that if I you know if I apply myself and just sometimes it's a question of just waiting it out. You know, but um, if if I exercise a minimum amount of discipline and just work at it, then eventually the songs will happen. Well, you did, uh, in another interview, mention something interesting about lyrics, uh-huh. um, which were, for a period in the 1960s, kind of sacrosanct. It was like, oh, it's about the lyrics, and they're so meaningful, and they're so powerful, and it's all about that in Bob Dylan, and it's about uh-huh. what Paul Simon is writing. But you, you have a kind of a different take on lyrics. Well, you know... They just happen. <laughs> you know, I, I like it. They don't just happen. That's not true. It's hard to explain. I, I still think in a way that, you know, out of what I do, uh, the three things that I do, which is sing, play guitar, and write lyrics, that the writing is probably the best hmm. thing I do the best. Okay. Um, I mean, there are people who think you're a pretty dandy guitar player, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I'm happy that they think that. And, and you know, I, I, I don't think I'm a bad guitar player. I right. just think that, that, you know, if I had to pick, you know, personally, if I had to pick the, one of the three things that I do, that I think I do the best, it would be... The, the writing of them. It would be writing. But I'm just so, you know, I'm a word person, you know. I just, the songs 
tend to say something, you know, then the <laughs> they get, you know. But well, as you said, it's the combination of the words and the music. It's oh, like yeah. Honky, you, you mentioned Honky Tonk Woman is an example of a song that just does not right. read. But when you hear it, even, you don't even understand half the damn lyrics. But yeah. it's just, it's like, boom, that song that is, says it. You know? That is true. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I, that's what I love about songs, is that you can actually do that with songs. But I, on the other hand, I do like lyrics that you can read. <laughs> okay. cool. I like them. I have about three songs that don't read very well and that I think are wonderful songs. Well, what are they? Well, one of them is called Link a Chain. Okay. And I defy anybody to make any sense out of that. <laughs> <You know>? it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it does make some kind of a sense, you know, some kind of sense, but it's not one of my more coherent uh, utterances. <laughs> And then uh, I have one on on train home called confirmation that's just sort of silly, you know. Okay. It's it it makes you laugh in a way, but it it you know if you were had to be pinned down and explain what it meant, you might have kind of a hard time. I have a hard time myself with it. Help me 
things don't seem to show I had it passed with bits of glue and leather How it fell apart, I'll never know I don't look for trouble, but it finds me all the same You hear me shout, just look out, cause it's calling me by name It's looking still, it always will If looks could kill, I'd be six feet underground And I never was good looking, but I'm too old to let that get me down You know I never was good looking, but now I'm too old to let that get me down. You know I never was good looking, but now I'm too old to let that get me down. Oh my God, this is terrible. What? There are 168 hours in a week, but days gone by is only one hour long. I know, I'm just on Thursday night. That's not enough! Well, why don't you get my CDs? CDs? All my complete shows are on compact disc. $14 a piece or less if you buy a bunch. Just go to davesgoneby.com. Fully packaged, and they make a nice gift, too. Well, my depression is cleared. Great. But not my psychosis. What chicken is this? Hi, this is Chris Smither, and you're listening to Dave's Gone By on WGBB AM 1240. Do you have a favorite song of yours? No. Oh, wow. Okay. No. Uh-uh. The favorite one is often the one I wrote last, <laughs> just because it's new. <laughs> well, come to think of it, um, your last um, album, Train Home, is dated 2003, right. and here we are, and it's 2005. Yeah. So, does that mean you've got a, another handful of... Um... Oh, they're coming. They're coming. Most of them are still embryonic, you know, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're shaping up. I'll be playing at least one, maybe two or three new ones at Joe's Pub. Oh, excellent. Um, let me ask you, one of the things about Train Home is that there are a couple of cover versions on there. Have you, have you gotten into that um, recently more of, of doing other people's songs? When no. I interview... oh, uh, yeah. I've always done two or three. You know. Mm-hmm. And plus, I, and then I often throw in a traditional blues you know, thing as well. But I, I've, I've done covers all my life. And who are the folks that you listen to in this day and age? What, what artists, what groups? <laughs> you know, one of my favorites, and I, I, still, I have to go out and get his new record too, but Martin Offler. Oh, okay. I think, I think Martin Offler is one of the most interesting guys around. Okay. <laughs> you know, he's a closet folky. Everybody thinks of him as a big rock and roll star, you know, but but you know he's a, he's just a great songwriter, and, and he's got he, he really finds interesting things to write about. He does a lot of every every seems like almost every record he does has an has a historical ballad on it that just hmm. really sends me. I just I love the and plus he's just a fabulous guitar player. Well, yeah, I mean, did you pick up anything from the who what what guitarists influenced the way that that your style? Or does it all go back to Lightning Hopkins? It all goes back to John know. Hurt and Lightning Hopkins, really. But, um, you know, there there are, I mean, well, um, Martin Offler, for one, you know, just the way he can sustain notes above while he keeps playing. <laughs> <laughs> just, I don't know, he sounds like two or three people at once sometimes. But you've also mentioned that your your style of playing 
evolved over the years, that, that it's gotten simpler in a way? I think it has, you know, to a degree. Well, I've finally learned, you know, it took me a long time to learn how to play slowly. What does that mean? I mean, why? Mm, because the spaces are just as important as the notes. Mm. Okay. And so that it was just a conscious effort to, to slow it down and play I don't think it was so or? conscious. It's just, I, I suddenly realized, you know, that I could compare, you know, one record to the next and see that it was, uh, you know, that there was a, a more measured pace to it. And at my best, I think that's, that's better because when you're young, you tend to be frenetic. <laughs> I always admire a young a young player who can play slow stuff. <laughs> it's contrary to what your hormones are telling. <laughs> and it's also sort of like what they used to say about um, when Neil Young, who is still in his heyday, but when he was in the early heyday, and he would do a, a guitar solo, and right. was like, well, he's just playing the same note, but oh, it's the right note. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, you mentioned before, in sort of a joking way, that, that you know, the reason you didn't get into uh, rock and roll was it was kind of difficult for you to, to do stuff with bands, and you still don't. You still generally tour um, yep. just you and a guitar. Right. There's never been that, that sort of desire to go out with even a trio or something? I did a few, a few things with a trio uh, with two other people at the beginning, in the early days when this last record came out, because... Um, I just loved working with him. With Peter, Peter Mulvey was playing some guitar with me, and then uh, David Goodrich, who produced that record, came out and did quite a few songs with uh, quite a few dates with me. Oh, that's cool. I loved that. I really did. But you know, basically, the songs are conceived as solo pieces. You know, so that's still where the emphasis is. You know, at some point, you know, you'll probably see me again with those guys. It wouldn't surprise me. Right. But, um, you know, on the whole. Basically, just me. The one thing I didn't really get to ask is sort of the personal side of things. I don't know if you, a uh, family person, have a uh, wife, have kids, have yeah. pets, have none of that. Oh, I know. I have a wife. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> I do. A really good one. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, yeah, so why? That's nice. Yeah. How, I mean, how, again, there's there's the typical musician question. How do you cope with a marriage when, you know, tonight you're, or, or tomorrow night you're at Joe's Pub and then uh, night after that you're somewhere else and then three weeks from now you're, you're in London? Um, well, one answer is that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And the other one is that, uh, uh, you know, I married my manager. Oh. <laughs> and we'd already been working together for about three or four years by that time. And so it's not like she didn't know what she was getting into. That begs the other question, then. What happens when you have a falling out? I mean, the business is always sacrosanct, and you just... Uh, we just learned how to keep it all separate, you know. When we're talking business, then you, you put on the other hat. <laughs> <laughs> when it's personal, you put on your personal hat. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, to, to sort of round out the interview, I'm trying to figure out where you see your career going in the next 10 to 20-odd years what well, you hope to happen and, and you know I, I don't really know I, I you know I just turned 60 so it's mazel tov, mazel tov. thank you it's getting uh, and the touring gets harder you know it does I don't know how long I can keep it up you know probably for another 10 years and in those 10 years I was I would expect to see you know at least three or four more records you know knock wood yeah and uh 
we'll just see what happens. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you want to be remembered in a way as a writer slash, with writer first, um, player, musician kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I, I try not to think about being remembered. I, try, <laughs> I just want people to enjoy me now. <laughs> and people can enjoy him at uh, Joe's Pub. This is Chris Smither, of course, on um, tomorrow night, January 7th. And uh, then you're not coming back in, into the New York, at least, until September, I think. Oh, that seems like a long time. Um, well, uh, at least uh, maybe maybe there'll be in-between things, but on your website, I think the next nearest thing... Oh, uh, well, that's just the stuff this book so far. It oh, tends okay. To get, it tends to fill in a little bit. Do you have a, a one memory of a concert that was just supreme, where a moment where everything worked and it was like, I mean, this is what it's all about? You know what? There's been a lot of them. Good. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of them. But I remember one in particular. I was playing in Canada at the Winnipeg Festival, and I was really out of sorts. I was mad about the way this whole thing had been staged. I was on, st- and everybody on stage was mad about it because <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody wanted to do this in the round thing. Everybody would, would have much rather played, you know, twenty or thirty minutes by themselves. Yeah. And and I remember thinking to myself and coming to this realization that it didn't matter how I felt. That the important thing was just to do the song. It was because, because the fact is that it wasn't about me. That's not what it's about. <laughs> it's about the music. And if I do the music right, then in some respects it will become about me. But that's not primary. And I've never forgotten that. And it's really helped me a lot. Well, it is about the music with the, the wonderful. Chris Smither. Chris, um, I just want to thank you so much for joining us in the neighborhood and for your music. Please, everybody, go out and get Train Home, not to mention all the other uh, Chris Smither. There are 11 of them, I believe, 11 albums out. Can I get them, aside from the usual Amazon and, and record stores, uh, you've got a website as well. Oh, yeah, smither.com. It's uh, chrismither.com. And, um, great, I, again, thank you very, very much. I wish you a happy new year and much success in 2005 and the years after that. Thank you, Dave. What do the letters DFSX stand for? They stand for Dave's Gone By, that's what, because DFSXRadio.com is rebroadcasting vintage episodes of Dave's Gone By every Thursday night at 8 and 11 Eastern Time. So, you hear me on GBB, and then listen to me on DFSXRadio.com every Thursday night at 8 and 11. It's all the Dave you can ever want, kind of. Sponsor me, Dave's gone by. Run your ad, folks will buy. If you want to reach the public, sponsor me. Advertise on this program for incredibly reasonable rates with long-term discounts. See prices at davesgoneby.com or call 516-295-1511. Sponsor me. If you're wise, on Dave's Gone By, you'll advertise. If you want to be successful, sponsor me. Welcome back to the final moments of Dave's Gone By tonight. Just enough time to remind you that I will be back at 9 for an hour of music on Filler Up. Mike Shimeri's Instrumental Invasion takes you through then, but if you want to hear an older episode of Dave's Gone By from 8 to 9 or again from 11 to midnight tonight, click on my website, davesgoneby.com. That'll bring you to streaming audio of the show on DFSX Radio. Special thanks to David Tangy for the syndication. 
Special thanks to my family and friends for making the New Year so great. Thanks to Program Director Tom Ross for the holiday gift. Gracias to Michaela O'Brien of Young Hunter Management for setting up tonight's interview. And most of all, to Chris Smither. Buy yourself a copy of Train Home and work your way back through a bunch of good albums. And catch Chris tomorrow night, January 7th, at Joe's Pub. And visit chrissmither.com to be, as W.S. Gilbert might put it, smothered in a smattering of smither. Thanks again to my sponsors, Hewlett Minuteman Press and TotalTheater.com. Love and blessings to my beloved wife, Joyce, and gratitude to you for listening. We go out with one more Chris Smither tune, and next week, January 13th, more music, a little on the funky, poppy, swanky side with Jeffrey Tozer. Until then, don't miss your days going by. Good night, so long, and gone by. Oh